If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, we'll start in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, in, uh, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word. To his name be glory and praise. Amen. A long text today, um, which means that we won't be able to go in fine detail, but I think to help us, if we can kind of hold on to to five things that are really fleshing out a question that was brought up in last week's sermon. Paul had come to the Corinthians and he had heard of division amongst the congregation. Uh, They were puffed up with pride. They had all sorts of spiritual gifts. They began to divide themselves. Some were following Paul. Uh, the original founder of the church, some were following the very eloquent Apollos, some were following Peter, because he was a, you know, probably because he was an apostle, one of the twelve, a disciple. And he says, if you do this, critical mistake, critical mistake, big mistake, huge. Thanks, Paul. You're going to get the gospel wrong. You're going to empty the cross of its power. It's the question for today because Paul takes the rest of the chapter to really devote into what it means to, to get the gospel right. This is such a, such a good message for us. We're endeavoring to, to plant this church and to be here as a faithful witness to our families, to the community, to wave the banner of the gospel. It's the 
question must be asked, do we get it right? Can we do anything to jeopardize the gospel? Could we empty it of its power? So I think there are five things, five kind of hooks we can hang on to, to see what it might mean to get this right or see what it might mean to get this wrong. The first thing we can see, this is just from first, verse 18 sort of as a, a theme verse for the morning. Look with me. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolish. It's foolish. I was... Um, I worked at a catering company for many years selling hot dogs. Not super glamorous, right? And there was one time I was at a basketball court, um, and I was catering in my little shorts and my apron, you know, and my little hat, and, you know, had a big full grill of hot dogs, just just serving people. Um, Talking to this guy, he came up to me, Asking me about, you know, what quality beef it is, you know, and just talking about hot dogs and stuff. I had a friend come up to me later and go, did you, what did he say to you? I like, what do you mean? He was talking about hot dogs. He said, you didn't know who that was? I was like, no, I, I have no clue. But brother, that was nine-time NBA All-Star Dominique Wilkins that you were just talking to. I had, I had no clue. Not really a big sports guy. He was very kind, very interested in Vienna beef. <laughs> but to my shame, right, I, I, I could have this great NBA player and just have just the ability in my mind is I can completely miss it. Something very similar is going on with the glory of the cross. I want to be real clear with my words, specifically the cross. 2 Corinthians 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I was terribly embarrassed once I realized how flippant I had been. And a similar thing happens when we see the cross. That in our flesh, the eyes can look at a crucified Savior and and somehow just think, how odd, how grotesque, how strange. You're preaching to me this strange image of a man crucified. What does that mean to me? The eyes of the flesh, if we look in the flesh, if the world looks in the flesh, the cross looks like foolishness. Calvin says, it's true. The world that we live in is like a theater in which the Lord presents to us the clear manifestations of his glory. And yet, notwithstanding that we have such a spectacle placed before our eyes, we are stone blind. Not because the manifestation is furnished obscurely, but because we are alienated in mind. The Gospel of John even presses it a little further. In um, John 3, it says, And this is the judgment upon the world, that light has come into the world. Christ Jesus, the light of the world, came in, 
And people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In other words, you ever ever been sort of embarrassed by somebody or sort of threatened by someone so you mock it and sort of give yourself some distance? We, We do that with our hearts. Light is coming to the world. We, we see it as foolishness. We don't, we don't like it. But there's something deep down that also suppresses the light. We don't want to see it because it would be a burden to us. You, you can't hold your eyes on the Christ, the cross. It's, it's stupid. It's, it's grotesque. It's, it's hard to stomach. It's hard to look at it. First point being, the cross holding up a dying man with no strength left to breathe. Um, Someone crying out in agony. That doesn't seem like wisdom to us. Second point. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through their wisdom. Uh, Paul says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Verse 25 reminds us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Listen to this. And that the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to be kind of clear in what this is saying. It's not saying that God has a scale of weakness or strength, as if some days he he just exhibits weakness. He doesn't have a scale of foolishness or wisdom, as if some days and some of his decisions are less wise than others. What this text means, and listen closely, is that the things that the world perceives as weakness and stupidity in the gospel of Christ. The things that the the world deems his weakness, the things that the world deems his foolishness, turns out to be the the very wisdom of God. It turns out to be the, the very thing that he has planned all along so that we'll see at the end of this chapter, so that no man can boast at all. And so that that orients us to our world. It orients us a a couple of things to our own hearts and how we view the cross. And it orients us to the Corinthian situation and the covenant of grace situation and to how do we present the gospel? Because it is not a relevant message. In fact, if you ever bring that question up to bear in the gospel. Well, how do we make the gospel relevant? You've missed the point. In the wisdom of God, the gospel is not relevant. In the wisdom of the world or in the strength of the world, it doesn't have that to bear. It looks crazy. And Jesus prays in Matthew 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. What does he mean by that? 
Lord, Lord, thank you that there is not this level of IQ or level of philosophical training or seminary training that you have to have to understand the gospel. But Father, as I stand here, Christ stands there to explain what the Father is like, to display his own power, to preach the gospel. Like, I'm standing up here trying to preach the gospel. Jesus is standing there preaching the gospel, and they don't understand. Like, this is, is not a work of man's doing. He goes, but God, I thank you that you reveal it to little children, those who have no qualifications, but who have eyes to see. Because it takes grace to see it. The cross is foolish. And it's presented to those with blind eyes. So it must be presented the way Christ intended it to be presented. It's number two. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world has made industrial revolutions and philosophies, and we've filled libraries, and we have hospitals, and we have medicine, and we have music and art, and it's very easy to think that how, how is it that we can make all these things and yet not be able to hold under our minds or hold under our thumbs the gospel. And God says, well, I take that away from you. I take that option from you. You will come to me on my terms. And you will see me on my terms. And the gateway to heaven is, is not the wide path of philosophy, but the narrow, the narrow way, the bending low, tiny gate of humility at the cross. Let's look a little bit more of what that means. This is the third thing this text begins to say to us. Jews seek for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block and folly. One of the things that that would happen when Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the Jews and as the apostles would bring the gospel to the Jews, it wasn't that they merely misunderstood it. Nicodemus, I think, kind of shows his hand and says, no, we understand it, we just don't like it. It became a stumbling block to them. As Paul reminded us this morning, Exodus comes before Sinai. The Jews had Sinai before Exodus. Christ's coming in weakness. Christ's coming not to overthrow but to be overthrown, um, they couldn't make sense of that. And it was grotesque. They, they, don't, they don't only just, uh, it says the Greeks kind of thought it was stupid. The Jews actually ab- abhorred the cross because it was, uh, the, the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. This can't be the Messiah. This, this man's cursed. Let's crucify him, crucify him, they cried out. We want this man gone. It's, it's grotesque. It's ugly. And to the Greeks, well, it was just stupid. Literally, the, the Greek word for foolishness here that Paul repeats so many times is moriah, where we get the word moron. It's moronic. The cross is... So you mean to tell me that God has a son and he comes 
and he is captured, and he doesn't put up any fuss. He doesn't put up any fight. Um, he does miracles, and then he goes, and he dies on the cross. And he goes to a tomb. Then he raises, and he goes to heaven. Okay, that's another myth. We can just, just silly. In fact, there's a really interesting, you can look this up. There's a, there's a Roman graffiti, ancient Roman graffiti of a, um, of a cross with a man hanging there with a donkey's head, an ass's head on a cross. And the inscription on the graffiti is Alexamenos uh, is God. Alexamenos worships his God. It's uh, this, this man making fun of his friend who is a Christian who worships some god with an ass's head on a cross. It just doesn't make any sense. So Paul makes a couple of things very clear. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come in lofty speech. I didn't come in wisdom. I didn't come in anything other than Christ crucified. He, he, there, there are times for eloquence. In fact, goodness gracious, this week I was just listening through some of the Covenant of Grace sermons and listened to uh, Neil Stewart. And I was thinking, man, like, how nice would it be to preach in an Irish accent? Like, I could say anything, and people would just really like that, you know? And I thought, wait a minute, that's the te- like, I'm doing the thing that Paul's saying not to do. Um, and that it just comes raw, and it just comes unvarnished. And it doesn't have to be packaged. It doesn't have to be sold. We don't, we're not peddlers of the gospel. We're not trying to uplift poor, pitiful Jesus that he needs my help with radical, uh, rhetorical flourishes. Or he, he, The cross stands in front of us and demands us to stare at it. And Christ does his work. Never try to hide the weakness of the cross. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. If you find yourself trying to proclaim to the world the Jesus of the cross and you're trying to defend uh, sort of the, the, the illogical, not, not to say that it's, it's foolish in a man's sense. It, like I said, point number two is this actually is the wisdom of God. What we find is that we were wrong all along, but if you try to find yourself polishing it up, trying to take a a buffering rag to the gospel so that your friends might think it's credible or if you try to puff Jesus up so that he doesn't look so weak and pitiful and the cross doesn't look so devoid of of God's mighty power, then you've got it wrong. He says, brothers, I come to proclaim Christ crucified. In Augustine's Confessions, um, Augustine writes of kind of his testimony of coming into Christ and, and just wanting to hold on to primarily his lusts. But he, he has a friend as he's coming into salvation. He has a friend that gave his life to Christ, uh, Victorinus. Victorinus, I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. Victorinus, Latin name. And he was a well-to-do kind of a rhetorical guy, uh, high social status and the testimony of his friend was, when I, when I looked at the cross, I hadn't been baptized yet. I was sort of getting into Christianity and learning about their philosophy. But I hadn't gone public with my testimony because I was ashamed. I was afraid. And he said, but when I looked at the cross, and I thought, 
how could this man be unashamed to bear my burden? How could he be unashamed to acknowledge me? How could it be for the joy set before him that he endured that? And I'm not even ashamed of my own sin. And the testimony of Augustine says he ran to to get baptized, to proclaim, I am associated with him. No matter what my, my earthly position was, whatever, how high it was, whatever good I looked, whatever my philosophy might have been, now I'm associated with the lowly Christ who is not ashamed of me. Because that's the gospel. That's the gospel, the suffering servant. <clears throat> Point number four. Paul says, consider your own calling, brother. This is God's choice, no boasting of your own. Let me read this one. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise and what is weak to shame the strong, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because in Christ Jesus now, he has become to us our wisdom. That's our wisdom. The cross is our righteousness, sanctification, and our redemption. So it is written, the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What he wants to say is, brothers, you've been puffing yourselves up with all these gifts, and you're following these different people, but remember who you are. Not many of you were of noble standing. Not many of you are very eloquent. Not many of you are very smart. It's not saying that not any, right? Church is full of smart people, full of nobility. It's full of kings and peasants and fishermen. Glory be to God for all of it. But we're not saved by anything else. Galatians 6.14 says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And get what I'm saying here. Not just, not just Jesus. I'm, I'm focusing on the cross because I think this changes us. I, I, my perception as pastor, just speaking candidly, I hear very little sometimes about the cross. And I've, I'm in theological circles and I'm, I'm hearing sermons and I'm wanting to do apologetics and, and talk to people about the faith. And sometimes it just doesn't come up to hold our gaze at the cross. It's easier to talk about the benefits of Christianity, and they are many, but they come through the portal of the cross. It's this northern star that sort of reorients our uh, pride in self or pride in even our theology and begins to just put us before Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. But Paul says, that's what I come to preach. It's Christ crucified. Look, Paul was obviously eloquent. He could go into uh, Athenian uh, you know, temples and just argue with the best of the philosophers. He could walk into the synagogue and talk best of theology with all the rabbis. And he goes to the Corinthians and says, look, I make it my point of purpose here to just be plain and talk about the cross. It's what you need to know. And I actually do it intentionally so that Christ gets all the glory. That's what we boast of. Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Hmm. What happens if we boast in our flesh? 
<clears throat> what happens if, in a, to Paul's previous point from last week, what happens if we even boast in our giftings or our theological camps? When we boast in anything but the cross, it's to despise the cross. It's to see it as insufficient for salvation. So he says, I, I make it my aim to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Colossians, after saying this very same thing, says, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom, you want power, you want knowledge, the thing that the world can't see. Brothers and sisters, our ambition is not to fight philosophy with philosophy, but it's to present, as Hebrews says, the sword of the word of God. It's Christ crucified that pierces division of bone and marrow. It's a wisdom of God that is beyond our wisdom. It is a power beyond our power. And it's the very weapon that seems like it wouldn't work. It's the very thing that seems most foolish. We're going to present this weakness to this world? Yes, we are. It's our glory. And we do not anticipate minimizing the cross and boasting on our own intellect to make Christ seem more how could, we, how could we make him seem more than the cross? Where his love is on display. He's a priest before our father. He's a son in obedience to his father. He's a lamb who went silently before his slaughterer. He's a brother on the cross. He spills his blood for the cleansing of our sin on the cross. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down on the cross. Grace and peace has been given to us. How? We've been reconciled. Romans 5, by the blood of the cross. There's a cross-centered vocabulary for the Christian, a cross-centered theology. That's the wisdom of God. From before the foundations of the world, it's not a plan B. It's the wisdom of God on display. It's the glory of God on display. Lastly, Paul's own example. <clears throat> Already alluded to this. He says, but brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, but I decided to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why was Paul in fear and trembling? Was he afraid of something? No. It's that the weight of the cross is, is almost too much to bear for the proclaimer. That's something I'm not familiar with. I don't think I frequently tremble under the proclamation of the cross. Sort of feeling the weight of what this means for the world. Let me wrap up this way. Paul says that um, all of his sort of training and accolades, he, and he had many. He'd founded a lot of churches and, you know, studied under the best teachers, had seen Jesus. And he said, I, all of these things in, in Philippians 3, he says, I count it all as, as, as dung. 
for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says again later on in Romans 1, he says, For I am not what, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think that for us becomes one of the major text applications for this morning. It's not just that we get the gospel right, but it's that as believers we join Paul in saying, I'm I'm not ashamed of this. I know that tomorrow, or, or, or I'm going to leave here, I'm going to walk into a world that still thinks that it's foolish, that still thinks that it's weak, that still thinks it's obscure, and I'm going to say I'm not ashamed to proclaim the cross of Christ. J. Gresham Mason, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, gives a really fascinating sort of story that I think succinctly highlights this point. He says, if you're beginning to try to think of salvation and think of the gospel and just how it's portrayed in the public sphere, let me remind you of three hymns. And so he starts with, Nearer my God to thee, and the the lyrics are these, Nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. So he says there's a way that we can, as, as Christians, begin to talk about the cross and sing about the cross but the impression is, is sort of entirely false. In reality, this cross that we're speaking of is not the cross of Christ, but it's our cross, that what we are bearing. This verse simply means that our own crosses or our, our trials that might be means that bring us nearer to God. So, so that's an okay hymn, and it's true enough. But listen to how it's speaking of the cross. Secondly, it says of specifically the cross, there's a different hymn, slightly better, he says. It says, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. In this second hymn, he says, true enough, it talks about Christ's cross and Christ on the cross, but it even misses there the full Christian sense and the meaning of the cross. The cross is celebrated. It's celebrated. It's there. It's a fixture in Christian theology. But the cross is not fully understood. So he suggests one of the best Christian hymns that gets the center of the gospel sort of right is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The lyrics being these. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. In other words, Machen said, when we, we see the cross, we see the prince of glory. Die? The foolishness, the weakness, die? And there as we look, God opens our eyes to pour contempt on all of our pride. As if we're seeing it right for the first time. How, how can I look at thing, such a thing and be ashamed of him? And the cross teaches me to be ashamed of my sin. How I've lived before this God who would love me in such a way, how, how could I do that? Pour contempt on me. Pour contempt on my pride. Have mercy on me. Who could neglect such a great salvation as this? Look at the Savior. 
the glorious thing is that feeling that creeps over us when we see the cross, like Augustine's friend, is that it doesn't crush us in the sense of guilt, at least not for long, because Christ lifts our head. Let me read one more passage to you and, and make a closing statement. 2 Corinthians 12 says it this way, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded to the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me this, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. When I'm weak, I'm strong. It's good for us to go into the world with calamities and hardships, being thought of as fools for Christ. Because when we're weak, we present the gospel as the weakness of the cross, when we present it accurately as the foolishness of the cross, when we get the Savior as He really is, as He chose to reveal Himself, that's when we're truly powerful. When we wax eloquent and come with the strength of our own gifts, that's when we're the most vulnerable of not being effective as a church, minister, proclaimer of the gospel. And this breaking of, of man... This humility isn't the crushing of our spirit, it's the crushing of pride. So when the cross of Christ is upheld, pride turns its head. Not able to look at the vulgarity or the, the lowness of it all or the foolishness of it all, but at the cross where the Prince of Glory died, it's where I pour contempt on all my pride. It's when I behold the wisdom and power of the cross, I find that I'm delighted to find there, in that picture, Christ Jesus, who became to us our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who find the cross foolish, and there are those who find the cross the power of God into salvation. Let that be us, and let that be our message.